Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast, they get more and more popular, which ours certainly did after episode 20. So we started giving proper introductions, long introductions, and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that. So that's why you're hearing from me now, because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host. My name is James Someru. I'm an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Podcast. My name is James and Alex is also with me today. We're the founders of HS and joining us this week is Peter Hames. Peter's the co-founder and CEO of Big Health, which is a health tech company that creates digital programs to help those with mental health conditions. Um, Peter is um, an insomnia patient himself, or at least was. So unsurprisingly, Big Health's first product is therefore Sleepio, which is a digital sleep improvement program delivered online or via the their app and I'll allow Peter to explain all about that but first of all Peter welcome how are you doing? I am very good pleasure to be here guys yeah um, sat in sunny San Francisco um, which isn't a guarantee by any stretch but uh, yeah enjoying, enjoying the weather. Awesome um, so Peter for our listeners why don't you tell us your story? Yeah so um yeah, so it's been a, certainly been a uh, a winding road. Um, the you know, big health you know, first thing to say starts from a very personal place, as you've already alluded to. So, um, a few years ago, I developed insomnia, um, which you know, as I'm sure many people listening will uh, relate to, is a pretty terrible, pretty terrible experience. Um, you know, and I'm very lucky uh, that I studied experimental psychology. Uh, at undergrad, you know, so um, yeah, I'm very fortunate that I know the science behind um, non-drug therapies for issues like insomnia. Um, you know, the most evidence-based of which is cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Um, and, you know, I knew from my degree that, uh, you know, traditionally CBT is delivered face-to-face by a trained therapist. You know, you get on the bus, you're going to see someone, uh, you know, a trained specialist once a week for about an hour. Uh, and the whole model is, is that you get taught, um, you know, skills, knowledge and techniques to help you become your own therapist. So that the, the reason it's so effective is, you know, it's really is an empower, empowerment model. You know, it's about, um, you know, giving you um, what you need to understand and address your own issue, your own problem. Um, so I sort of dutifully, you know, with this knowledge in hand, went off to see my GP um, and, you know, very smugly announced my self-diagnosis of primary chronic insomnia, which 
obviously, you know, doctors love, as I'm sure you guys both will uh, <laughs> agree. Um, and, you know, he, he very pr- probably pretty reasonably told me where to stick it and gave me sleeping pills. And, you know, for, again, uh, at the time I was aware of this, but, uh, you know, many folks, again, are not aware that, that the um, most commonly available sleep medication is actually, you know, only uh, like listed and recommended for short-term acute use, you know, and for that, you know, it does that job um, reasonably well, um, but it is explicitly not intended for chronic chronic sleep disturbance. Um, uh, and so, you know, I sort of, again, similarly smugly announced this to the, <laughs> to the doctor uh, who um, was pretty unmoved in that being the only option. And so I, out of desperation, you know, I took the pills, they didn't work. Um, and so out of desperation, um, ended up getting my hands on a self-help book. Um, so sort of self, you know, a self-administered course of CBT. Uh, again, sort of the whole deck stacked in my favor. My sister is actually a clinical psychologist on the NHS. And so she was aware of, you know, this series of books that, um, you know, was you know, recommended by the NHS uh, as being evidence-based, you know, written by world leaders in the field. And so I you know, did this self-help program, you know, chapter a week, you know, very manual process, uh, like any, you know, self-help book, photocopying out sleep diaries, like, you know, doing maths, you know, sort of very sort of arduous uh, <laughs> process in the scheme of things. Um, but in just six weeks, I was totally better, like totally cured. And, you know, my first reaction was, this is like, this is amazing. Like, this is like magic. And, you know, for, you know, I knew the the science behind CBT from the theoretical perspective, and I had not experienced the uh, direct effects of it on a personal level. And, you know, for anyone who's not um, experienced that, you know, the great power of CBT is it's not rocket science, right? Like the great power of it is, is that it is, I like to think of it as evidence-based common sense. You know, it's a set of very intuitive, very practical principles to apply to your thinking and to your behaviors. Um, and what's remarkable from an individual perspective is how those very simple changes uh, can transform and, and help you overcome this problem that was completely impervious to all of your best efforts. Like no matter what I, I did, even with a degree in psychology, I couldn't address this. I couldn't sleep well. Um, the second reaction was, this is totally insane that we have a situation in which hundreds of millions of people across the world are suffering from these issues like insomnia, like anxiety, like depression, for which we have these evidence-based non-drug solutions like CBT. And yet, you know, which we've known about for 30 plus years, like there are, you know, backed by hundreds of randomized controlled trials, um, recommended in you know, pretty much every major clinical guideline globally, you know, as a, you know, an effective solution to these, these chronic issues. And yet almost no one can get it. And, you know, for me, like what is remarkable is, is that if, you know, if that was a cancer treatment, like if, if it was the case that for 30 years we had overwhelming evidence and all the clinical guidelines supported the delivery of a p- particular cancer medication, it would rightly be like a global scandal. And yet this is the situation we're in with some of the most prevalent, um, distressing and expensive conditions on the planet, you know, in, in these chronic mental health issues. And so for me, that was just like, I was just like, this is just crazy, you know, and, and uh, sort of fired up by my own experience. I was like, this is a perfect example of where technology can, should be able to help. 
Um, and so, you know, with that thought in mind, um, put on a suit, uh, got on a train, um, and, uh, you know, got in touch with the, the, the author of the book, um, that I used to overcome my insomnia and he, he became my co-founder. So he is Professor Colin Espy, who's at the University of Oxford now, you know, one of the world's leading behavioral sleep scientists, you know, uh, 30 plus years of research experience, like hundreds of clinical trial papers published, um, you know, and together we set up Big Health, what is now Big Health, um, you know, and I think that for me, appreciating that uh, mix of my perspective, which is, as you say, the sort of patient perspective, but also like my background previously, you know, working with technology, like building technology products um, and consumer products with his kind of deep expertise in, in the clinical science and in kind of healthcare and clinical evidence in general, it goes a long way to explain like our approach and the DNA of, of big health itself. It's a really interesting story. I mean, you know, you, so you started off as an insomnia patient. You wanted to cure yourself not using pills, which I think is another interesting point. You know, people are at the moment are really rejecting that paradigm that there's sort of a pill for everything. But you've read this book. You've had this idea that, okay, you know, digital therapeutic can be used to treat people with sleeping problems, that you know, particularly ones that you're having. So you've rung the professor who actually wrote the book. You then got on a train to see him. And all of a sudden, you guys have started a company. I mean, it's really fascinating story. And just one of those things, you know, you know, get off your backside and actually go and do something, you know, just ring the professor and, and go and go and found a company. It's an incredible story. I mean, how did you go from, from that initial meeting then with... Um, with Colin to then creating the product. Yes. I mean, I actually remember like, uh, that first call, that first cold call, like on my lunch break, like walking around central, like freezing central London, <laughs> like some square, like trying to have this, this call. And in like true, like, so Colin's like a, a pretty no nonsense Glaswegian. Um, and <laughs> so how did that call go? Well, he was like, you know, I was like, Hey, Oh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I read your book and it, you know, oh, I was really appreciative. I've got this idea. And he was like, do you know how many of these calls I get a week? <laughs> I really, I really. And I was like, okay. So I'm very consistent, like Colin's MO. But um, no, and, and, you know, but as soon as we met in person, I'm a big believer in, as you say, getting on the plane, getting on the train, you know, going, like physically going to see someone to show that you actually, you know, your, your intent is sincere. Um, you know, there's just a real click, click in a meeting of minds and, and clear alignment of values and motivations. And like, you know, I, I'm just incredibly lucky, you know, that it just so happened that the person who'd written this book, um, you know, it, like that Colin was not only, you know, one of the world's top experts, but it has, you know, has proven to be such a great partner in terms of, um, you know, mindset. Like Colin's a real, has always been an early adopter of technology, is incredibly sort of uh, ambitious and kind of um, creatively minded. And, you know, so has been like, it's worked really well between us in terms of um a partnership so yeah i would i would really um i think it's i think it's you know i think it is uh in my experience to date it's always been the case that um there are you know in general people are much are always going to be receptive much more receptive to ideas than you might fear and in this particular domain of like health technology um there are so, these sort of silos of such like pent-up demand in the, you know, um, you've got innovators coming from outside the healthcare field or, you know, clinicians from within it who might not, you know, um, 
you know, uh, maybe you know, who, who nece don't necessarily have all the skills or experience necessary to build the complete picture. Um, and then you'll have like other folks who are looking for exactly that like um, complementary set of skills and knowledge. So, you know, with, with respect to academics, you know, I, I have found that you know, a lot of health te um, technology entrepreneurs, at least in the early stage, you know, struggle with this question of like, how do we collect clinical evidence in a way that is, you know, uh, cost effective, you know, is actually affordable and, um, you know, credible and all the rest of it. And my advice is always like, just ring up, just ring up a bunch of academics because the likelihood is, is that you will find someone who is in desperate need, like and desperately wants uh, a technology solution to test <laughs> or to like, you know, to, to uh, and just doesn't have the skills and knowledge about how to build that technology, but has, you know, a ton, maybe even already has existing research grants that they can put to work against testing and innovation. So I think that for me, one of the biggest ways that, that we can accelerate the whole ecosystem is by building better bridges between those different disciplines and just matchmaking between like-minded individuals from very, very different backgrounds. Hmm. I'll definitely ask you about the evidence in a sec, but first of all, I'd quite like you to just talk through the product. So um, yeah, talk us through like a typical user journey um, for someone that, that uses Sleepy. Yeah, so the, um, so, <laughs> I had the benefit of sort of starting from the perspective that I was, I was kind of building a product for myself, you know, uh, through, based on my own experience. And I think one of the first sort of instincts was to make it feel more like entertainment than medicine, right? So to go, look, I've been through this experience, every other solution I see out there that's in quotes and quotes healthcare feels like it's walking on eggshells. It's very sort of clinical and respectful mm -hmm. and like quiet and calm. And actually, you know, my experience is an incredibly emotional, human, like problem, you know, and, and it felt to me appropriate that the solution reflected that. And I'd much rather if I'm going to be, you know, going through this process for it to feel human and warm and, you know, a bit irreverent and, you know, versus cold and clinical. And so um, I should say as well, that the whole idea here is that we are taking these talking therapies and fully automating them. That's really central, was always really central to, uh, our solution to this problem, which was you have this enormous amount scale of need and the current way of delivering CBT is never going to scale to that scale of need. And so that pure automation from day one was central to you know, this idea of digital medicine, the idea that we are substituting the molecule for the algorithm, but that you know, the fundamental dynamics of the solution are the same, which is in the same way you can produce millions of pills very, very efficiently, you can produce infinite copies of software, all of which are all identical very, very, you know, instantly. Mm. And so that, when bringing that together with the product experience, that heightened the need to make it feel more human because it's automated, right? So because it like, you know, we have to work harder to make an automated um, experience meet that emotional need of the user. And so the Sleepier program is presented by your virtual animated sleep expert, the prof, uh, and his narcoleptic dog Pavlov, who like leads you through the program. So he's a little Scottish, uh, Scottish professor. Um, <laughs> and uh, which I have to say is not, I officially, it's not, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's, um, but uh, we did, you know, I can talk about how we chose the voice, the whole ton of testing on this, but it's this, you know, again, a very, very consciously quite basic character um, you know, based on the evidence that we saw around avatars and around, you know, people's 
irresistible urge to confer humanity on something that looks human, even if they know it's not actually human. Um, and so the, the prof and his, you know, his sleepy dog Pavlov, you know, will greet you by name and you know, give you a personalized evaluation of like, ah, oh, let's see how you've been sleeping this week. Okay, you know, not such a good week, but you know, hang in there early days, you know, if you've been entering your sleep data through the week. Uh, and then we'll give you a set of tailored cognitive and behavioral techniques based on the information that you've given him. And so um, that could span from, like I say, particular you know, cognitive approach, like paradoxical thinking, all the way through to, you know, the more more intense behavioral techniques like sleep restriction, you know, and associated with each of those, he'll unlock digital tools to help you put those into practice. So with sleep restriction, it's all about having a, uh, a very personalized schedule um, of when what you should be doing when through the day and through the night to give yourself the best chance of a good night's sleep. And so that schedule will evolve over time. So as you you know, progress, he will, you know, look at your data and adjust that schedule. Uh, and maybe if you're, if you're doing well at it, he might add in new things for you to try. If not, he'll just let you consolidate that, that, that program in your own time. Um, and so, yeah. And so as a result, you know, it, it, it it's in, like I say, it in intended to feel almost not like a healthcare experience. So it feels much more like a, yeah, much more human than that. It seems to be a bit of a differentiator, to be honest, particularly at the moment between the best health tech products and those that certainly aren't. I mean, Stephen from Echo came on our podcast a few weeks ago and he said that design was quite an unloved area of health tech products thus far, especially when you think of the big players and things like that and what people actually use on the ground floor in organizations and things. But as you said, you know, you've, UX and UI has been such a design focus. Um, and you said some another interesting thing there, you know, things like substituting the molecule for the algorithm um it gives you this need this extra need for you to try harder to make things feel more human and you do obviously consider that a responsibility on one on one hand because you know you're dealing with people's health but also imagine from a stickiness perspective and actually getting you know user uptake and things it's all extremely important yeah i mean i think where we end up and this is what you know this is the model that we're partnering with the nhs to you know learn more about and to to iterate um, and it's what we're doing in the US is is that because these solutions are so safe in the scheme of things you know that they're very very low not you know one should never be complacent about it like it needs proper clinical governance but in the scheme of things the um, they're low risk uh, interventions um, it opens up and because they're software it opens up the opportunity for um, you know novel care pathways like so direct access care pathways where you know, uh, people self-refer into the digital solution, like via a particular URL. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, as a result of that, you know, it, it makes sense to me that, that at sort of full fruition, at full maturity, digital therapeutics, a big class of them at least, will be indistinguishable from consumer products. You know, that essentially it's going to be about, you know, you've got your, I think you're being naive if you don't think that, you are um, essentially competing with any other app like uh, on someone's phone, like, um, you know, that th th you'll be judged in exactly the same way. Um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, Sabri's Keogh before he you know, left his post as, as medical director at the NHS, asked this brilliant question, which, which was in a conversation we had, which was, um, you know, what is a patient? <laughs> as in like, as in like, and like he was like, you know, that if if you know, as is well documented, um, 
you know, especially like the younger generation are no longer attending GPs practices and are actually using A and, you know, A and E as a, you know, which is obviously not great, but as a sort of, you know, almost like on-demand healthcare, um, then maybe we, and if they're in Snapchat, then maybe we should be delivering care through Snapchat. Mm. So, but I think, I think, you know, which I think Sir Bruce obviously has that, is very in line in that respect. But I think that, um, anyway, to bring it all the way back to your point, like, I think that for me, design UI, I, I just think that the, with these novel methods of delivery of care, the, the boundaries between healthcare, not healthcare, consumer and healthcare just start to get broken down. And, and the truth is, is that I think it's naive to think that, you know, that people, and they're all, you know, are we patients? Are we not patients? Everyone's people will just um, be evaluating these digital solutions in exactly the same way they'd evaluate any other digital solution. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we, we talk about um, digital health itself as an emerging market. And I think it's fair to say that when you pitch the original idea and concept for Sleepio to uh, Prof Espy, digital therapeutics hadn't really been, you know, talked about a huge amount. So tell us a little bit about how you, you took that initial kind of pitch, the initial concept that you and Colin uh, devised, and, and then took that to kind of people like the investors, people like even the patients to, to show them that this was a viable solution, that if it was built, it was going to benefit as many people as it has now done. Yeah, so we, um, uh, you're right, that like digital therapy, it's nice that it's got a name now. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I was talking about digital medicine uh, I want to say maybe like three years ago. And it's only really in the last 18 to 24 months that that as a digital therapeutics as a label has really gathered some momentum, I think, which is great. You know, and I think it's great that it's got that sort of focus. Um, uh, yeah. And you're right that when we first developed this in the UK, we didn't really have any idea what it really was or any idea that it was even health technology, like that it fit into a sort of community or a kind of sector like there was so few people doing anything at all like um certainly in the uk around at that time um you know we what was interesting is the first time that we raised you know so our, our first um venture investment was from index ventures we were actually their first you know very well you know esteemed very you know probably the most successful uh technology venture firm in europe and uh, you know, Neil Reimer, who's the co-founder, is is on our board still. Um, who made that investment? You know, Neil um, just who you know has proven himself to be like a real visionary investor, just keyed into that vision. You know, which was you know the first principles. This stuff is as scalable as drugs. Um, it's as or more effective. And if you believe like we do in the latent user demand for an alternative, then this could be absolutely enormous. And he just bought into that idea. He, you know, he bought into the first version of the product. He could sort of see where we were heading with it. And so from an investor perspective, we were sort of very fortunate that we found, you know, early on, like quite visionary investors. Um, in terms of actually those other stakeholder groups, you know, that's, that's, for me, that's the big challenge in this domain is if you think about, so our purpose is to help millions back to good mental health like no asterisk, no small print, like every decision that we make in the company has to be justifiable in terms of how it gets us in a straight line closer to that goal. I say like a scratch record at the start of every team meeting, um, you know, to hold all of us accountable, you know, and of course we'll drift and there'll be gray areas and so forth. But the important thing is, is we're continually snapping back towards that being the thing that we're optimizing for. And so, um, you know, in that context, uh, 
you know, we, um, you know, we realize that, well, there's actually a sort of a longer story here, but like, um, you know, we realized that, uh, you know, coming to the U S was going to be, um, our best way of accelerating that, you know, and I, I'm, an, I'm proud to say I'm an NHS innovation fellow, uh, which is, is, sounds very grand. Uh, <laughs> is, uh, you know, unfortunately doesn't come with any sort of, um, ceremonial outfit or anything. Um, <laughs> so, so actually, uh, James but, is the only person on this podcast who isn't an NHS. <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. There's a lot of us now. But, um, but so I really, you know, I'm a passionate believer in the NHS and we, and we continue to do work with it, but we would just realize that in terms of sort of, um, you know, making this something which is viable, like we're never going to scale to help millions unless we can, you know, figure out a strong and, um, you know, compelling revenue model. Like we're, we're never going to, you know, if, if the ambition here, and I think the, the, the opportunity here is to build a sector of a size and scale to challenge big sections of big pharma. And when I say challenge, I just mean, I don't mean like by any means that I'm anti-drug by any means, but I am pro-evidence. And, you know, I think that people should be given the choice where the evidence supports it. And I think that the fundamental dynamics of digital therapeutics, you know, mimic those same qualities of pharmacotherapy. And so if you believe in that scale of opportunity, you have to also, you know, uh, pursue a really compelling business model to to allow you to, to grow. And it was clear that in the US that was gonna um, that was gonna be more possible more quickly than in the UK, and so so yeah. So I think in terms of the patients and as you said the other stakeholders that we need to um, convince around this, we've just found a very effective model in the employer, primarily in the large employer market in the US, where you know large employers will reimburse the solution. Um, uh, you know, 98% of employers with over a thousand employees in the US have their own health plans. They're known as self-funded employers. Um, and so they have, have very clear and strong incentives to both, you know, reduce costs around healthcare, but also to make sure that quality of care is delivered uh, very consistently because they care about their employees, well-being, retention, productivity, like all the rest of it. Um, and so you have, you know, very motivated payer group, um, who in the scheme of things can move relatively quickly. And then we just found, you know, these direct access models of enrollment to just make sense to people. Like it just, you know, by virtue of that direct access model, we don't have to really explain this as healthcare. Like we're just providing a solution to someone's problem. We don't even have to use medical terminology. We can use whatever terminology that person would relate to, you know, um, as ultimately what we're delivering can be, a sort of, as it were, clinical grade solution in terms of, you know, evidence-based uh, therapy, but we can wrap it up in whatever way um, engages the person in need best. So it's, that, it's very liberating, very exciting in that respect that I think it disconnects the underlying mechanics. I look, think of it like a sort of a benign Terminator, you know, like a Terminator pulls back his face is a machine underneath it. <laughs> it's like you can have this sort of like, you know, it's kind of like the therapy delivery machine can be separated from whatever the engagement and relevance layer is. Um, and as a result, you can sort of sidestep a lot of the, what I like to think of as middleware in healthcare that has been necessary to, to just facilitate like delivery of care. So like a lot of the syndromatic descriptions like, you know, anxiety, depression, these have been necessary labels 
in order to connect people with, with the right care, right? You have to diagnose someone in order for, for them to be able to be prescribed, you know, or referred to the appropriate solution. In digital therapeutics, we can, all, we can do that whole thing in, internally. So we don't need to use those labels to refer people anywhere else. We can just give them the right solution. If that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, no, completely. And, and from a, I mean, really interesting, the, the speed at which you, you went over and attacked the US, because I guess for entrepreneurs in general, often the advice that they are, are given is, is do something that doesn't scale initially, start in a, a small target market. Um, but increasingly now, I mean, I've, I've just finished reading Reid Hoffman's uh, Blitz Scaling book, where he used the analogy of um, Airbnb and um, one of their competitors who was essentially making lots of good traction in Europe and then was getting sort of quite aggressive into the US and they had to make the decision of, you know, do we follow that sort of, I suppose, traditional um, startup, startup advice of, of staying in our own territory and, and really winning that before, before moving uh, in internationally, or do we go and attack two fronts and they ended up going and attacking two fronts and, and that's where Airbnb sort of um, made headway into, into Europe. Um, how did you find, I suppose, moving Sleepio into the US market, you know, both from a personal point of view and from a, a business focused point of view? I mean, it's been, I mean, I mean, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So I can sort of paint this as a strategic masterstroke, whereas in reality, like, in reality, like, you know, it was a, at best, like an informed, like gut. It was one of those sort of gut moves where I was like, there's no way of bottom up working out if this is the right thing to do or not. There's like, so many unknowns um, that it does have to be made, you know, it just is, it does have to be a bit of a leap of faith. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm obviously now I'm really glad that we did it because it has been, it's proven to be um, very successful for us. Um, and we've learned, you know, we not only in terms of like refining and you know, validating and refining a commercial model and um, but also in terms of just operational uh, lessons, right? So, we now, because we, you know, we've done it so many times, we can deploy this, our solutions at a very significant scale. And it's those, those operational lessons that we're able to bring back into the NHS to go like, actually, you know, we know we, you know, walk in humble, like we're not saying this is like uh, a copy paste, but we have a, a good set of starting hypotheses that we've seen work in different populations that we can start from in, in trying to engage people effectively in, in the UK. Um, and yeah, and I think um, it's funny because, you know, the, you know, it's you know, that sort of cliche of like, however many years it takes to be an overnight success. Like, um, I think, uh, you know, we certainly felt like we you know, banged our head against a few brick walls in the UK before making that decision to move to the US. It was actually the index investment that triggered it. So it was that that allowed us that ambition to, uh, you know, to take on that to take on that market. Like it's, you know, my experience honestly was that, you know, you'd, we'd, I'd say in groups of people or investors, I mean, obviously like the real, you know, the really big opportunity is the U S and everyone was sort of nodding. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. And that sort of conversation would end there. And as soon as we'd raise money from index, I was like, Oh, the real opportunity is the U S. They were like, well, why don't you move there? And I was like, damn it. <laughs> you know, there's sort of nowhere else. There's no excuse not to sort of go and attack it. And so I think, um, but yeah, it's been great. And like my, my, my I, again to mangle a ben mangle and yet another um cliche or uh, i think in this this case a ben franklin quote um you know wisdom is knowledge of your own ignorance um and i think that 
my experience of the US health market has been that, you know, it's a bit like a fractal that if that you sort of look at it and go, oh, I think I've sort of got my head around that. And you get a bit closer and you're like, there's another level of complexity. <laughs> like every right. time you get closer, there's more and more complexity. And so, you know, I feel in a way like less confident that I know of how much, what percent I know at this point, <laughs> but we've learned a huge, what I do know is we know a huge amount more about it than uh, we did when we first got here. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know if that really answers your sort of rambling, but answers your question. Yeah, it, it, it does. I mean, w one of the things that we, you know, at HS, um, James and I tell all of our companies is think global from day one and don't be afraid to make those big decisions early. And uh, you guys obviously are a prime example of that, looking at, at that US market and actually um, going over there and making it happen. You know, as you say, everyone talks about moving territories or going international, um, but, but often people take a, a long time uh, to make that leap. Um, and the other thing that we sort of put a lot of emphasis on is sales. So it, it'd be really interesting, though, you know, if just from a, a really practical sales point of view, going yeah. from a public healthcare system where, again, the NHS itself is quite fragmented, getting um, into specific deal makers and procurement channels Mm. is in itself an art and a science who are your who are your your sort of deal makers and, and how's that changed looking at that more sort of i guess corporate insurance focused structure that you're now selling into yeah and i would totally agree with you i mean like i i think that you know the way that we think about striving towards that goal of helping millions back to good mental health is it does get broken down into three components like product distribution and reimbursement like you've got to excel at and be creative on all three of those fronts uh, to succeed and actually I would argue that the latter two distribution and reimbursement need more innovation to be successful than the first you know there's there's no end of stories of great products that just didn't go anywhere do you know what I mean that didn't that withered on the vine and never made an impact um, and I, I find it an enjoyable Rubik's Cube to try and you know crack essentially um, so when we got here as ever it's a sort of um, a healthy mix of of like a heavy dose of luck with some judgment. <laughs> and we had been fortunate that we had started doing some of the right things for the wrong reasons, which is better than the other way around, quite frankly, um, where we had already had some contact with large corporates from, from Europe. Um, again, really vague sense that we could just sell this to companies. Like there was, there was nothing m deeper than that. And so we already, but we already had a couple of relationships that we could uh, leverage. And, you know, the benefit of that is that, you know, you pull on a bunch of threads and some start, you know, unravel, you, know, you start getting some traction on uh, something. And so to some extent, you can sort of follow your nose on this. And so when we got here to the US, um, in a way, like naivety was our, one of our greatest assets and sort of thinking about it from a first principles way. So all of our commercial traction today has to in well the vast majority of our commercial traction today has been driven by direct sales like we have a you know it's all our own like commercial team that has been built to um you know build, like make contact and build those relationships close those deals deliver those contracts um it's all been done in-house uh, and the major the vast majority of the credit for this needs to be given to my chief commercial officer dickon um and as two you know, British guys with funny accents, you know, landing on these shores. There was a sort of very high level question about, you know, just eat, will, will people sell to us? And so my, sorry, will people buy from us um, as a sort of, you know, um, a 
quotes and quotes like foreign company and you hit it was like we, we sort of heard a lot of the same uh myths around you know a- entering the u.s market what we found was that um you know um some of those are true so i think what is absolutely true is that you have to be based here to be taken seriously by any sort of enterprise customer like i think if you're not because for me it just shows a very high level commitment to being you know like we're committed to the US market we're committed to adapting this product if necessary to fit your audience like you know we're here like we we have a US address you know we are here what isn't true is that you need a US accent to sell into this like into this market and if anything we have found that our britishness has been a real calling card like in terms of the market because we, we, I think it probably bleeds through our culture that, you know, even though now the majority of our team is here in the US, we have hired against, I think, some of those sort of more underlying, like, values and personality traits that we, we tend to be a bit more reserved, like we don't oversell our data. Um, we tend to be just generally less salesy, like we tend to be much more focused on consultative building relationships, um, you know, and you know, over a period of time, and it becoming quite a natural partnership. You know, and as a result of that, we've, we've, we've had incredible retention of those customer relationships over many, many years. And so, um, so yeah, so that, w- that would be my advice directly to folks thinking of coming this way is, is that I would definitely, you have to commit. Like, I think you are, I've heard many, many horror stories of people half committing where founders have sort of hired someone over here, uh, but not wanting to move themselves. And I think you've got to, you've got to be two feet in to, to, um, you know, one founder has to at least be here physically. If you're going to be, if you've got any, even just like getting an instinct for the market, you've got, you've got to be here to like make good decisions. Um, but I would also say that um, I got, I, and funny enough, I got this very specific advice, a guy called James Heger, who is a mentor in residence at Index Ventures, who uh, worked closely with Steve Jobs for, for many, many years. Um, and uh, his advice to me on moving here was, don't lose your soul. And I was, and I was like, oh, it's so Californian. What a Californian thing to say. Like, and actually, <laughs> over, over, over time, that sort of simple advice is like grown in stature. And I go, oh, okay, you really actually meant that in that there is a, like, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Like, being different, like being true to the stuff that has made you successful to date, being different, especially in Silicon Valley, is like a real asset. Like it's a, it's a real, um, doing it your own way. And it, and that way for us is very shaped by where we were founded. You know, the fact that we're a British company, um, has just, it just means that that's what we're known for. It's like, that's, that's kind of part and parcel of our style and our approach, um, which has gone down very well. So, so yeah, so yeah, so we've, yeah, we've, it's all been through direct sales. Um, you know, like I say, naivety was our friend in that we, when we first got here, like, we just set ourselves what we later learned to be a ridiculous target, which we hit <laughs> like, like actual salespeople have then come in and gone, and gone you did what in year one? <laughs> so, so like, you know, cause we just didn't know any better. We didn't have, we didn't know anyone. I mean, we literally had no idea what we were doing. Oh, who, who, who was your first hire out in the US? Was that your sort of um, chief of sales or was that somebody else? No, so Dickon is British as well. And he's actually been living out in the US for a couple of years already, but he was, you know, but he, and, and, and to be clear, like Dickon isn't a sales guy. He's an uh, ex-consultant who sort of learned how to do that out of necessity. Um, our first US hire. So we were, because we, we moved, there were probably like 10 of us at that point. It was probably like, and we left 
a couple of people back in the UK, so engineering in the UK, which is actually more to do with personal circumstances than, than any sort of strategy. Um, so we were all um, British for a while. <laughs> I think we actually, I'm trying to remember, I feel like we even might have hired uh, British people here first. Um, our first uh, actual US hire was um, a guy called Mike, who's still with us, who um, ended up doing everything. I mean, we're at that size, everyone's still kind of doing everything. And so, but he ended up uh, doing everything from running marketing through to running partnerships. Um, but he, he sort of slowly became more British, just started using British Latin, British terminology. Um, and, then, and then since then, like I would say, like the majority of our, there's 75 of us now, and um, the majority of whom are in SF. And um, yeah, the majority of those folks are a very diverse group, but like, you know, there's definitely a higher percentage of Americans right now. Um, so yeah, our you know, VP product, Kelvin, he's actually Canadian. He'll hate me for saying he's US, but um, uh, you know, our VP engineering based out here, you know, US. So yeah, much more, much more uh, locally representative workforce now than when we first got here. I just want to fill in the story now as well. So, I mean, via corporates and insurers, you know, you're available to what 12 million people worldwide. You've had 33 journal articles, eight randomized control trials, obviously the be all and end all of of evidence. You've had 12,000 participants in some of those studies. And now you're even prescribable in the UK in London to all 8 million people, right on the NHS. I mean, that's an incredible amount of people that Sleepio is now available to. Yeah, uh, it's great. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's humbling. And um, I think that, as you say, particularly what's particularly satisfying is being able to, after many years, um, be able to have, make it available in the UK again. And like our, you know, our, our, our focus in the UK is to find a mutually sustainable model. Like that's the, it's a partnership approach to go, you know, I, myself and Colin, you know, Colin's worked in the NHS you know, for, for decades, for years and years. And that's really the motivation. So, you know, it, his passion is about getting this stuff out there and you know, all of his research over many years, like actually making a difference in the community. And so I think, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really exciting to us to like be able to like bring back the lessons and the learnings that we found in the US and actually make it available to people in the UK um, yeah, and the, and the research evidence, again, I got Colin to, you know, that's all Colin's, to Colin's credit, you know, from day one, he advocated for, it, it, it highlights to me, you know, actually reflecting on it, how much of this stuff is actually values-based, like, it's like, it ultimately has a strategic value, but a lot of this stuff we did just because it felt like it was the right thing to do, you know, and so collecting evidence, you know, we deliver, we, we published our first randomized control trial, which was the first ever placebo group RCT for digital mental health intervention while we were bootstrapping. Like we didn't even have funding at that point and we weren't, we were, this is pre-revenue. Like, mm -hmm. and so, you know, from, from, and there were, well, there were days and nights where I was like, this is insane. <laughs> this is like a really stupid, this is like a, what are we doing? Like, this is crazy. But you know, Colin was adamant that like, this is, this is healthcare. This is the way we should do it. We should prove it works you know, this is, this is, you know, if we're serious about this being, you know, having the impact that we want it to, we have to do the hard yards that like we've got mm -hmm. to do this properly. 
and so in retrospect, I'm really grateful because that then set the ball rolling to this like snowballing set of evidence where, you know, our evidence has just grown and grown. And a lot of like the banal, like it, this shouldn't be surprising, but the way that we've grown that evidence base is by supporting science. Like, it's, that, it's that simple. Like we have a publish, you know, publish and be damned to sort of like summarize it, approach to evidence collection. We have a set of research principles, like, you know, which you've got to meet as a researcher, which is that, you know, you've got to have IRB, you know, approved protocol. You know, you've got to be obviously well-respected. You've got to, it's ideal, you've got to be funded in some way as a study. But it, if all those criteria are met, we just give you our product to test. Like, we don't have any say or rights over publication. You know, I think that, you know, and Ben Goldacre's, you know, bad farmer i think kind of uh sums up you know why this is so important for like science in general but like that you don't that you don't have this systematic anything that's systematically skewed in that way but that's meant meant that the research that gets published is very credible because it's independently led um you know and you know quality attracts quality like researchers want to use ever you know the most evidence-based uh and credible solution in their research and so so yeah, so I, you know, that I have to give all credit to Colin for in sort of trusting his instincts, which has ultimately generated for us a huge asset in that clinical research. You know, we're now featured in, our actual research is featured in the um, American College of Physicians latest guideline uh, as a recommended first line intervention for insomnia um, ahead of medication. Wow, that's awesome. Right, we, I, we didn't we didn't solicit that like we didn't lobby them that's just because there's so much evidence mm. like we you, you referenced the twelve thousand figure this is an amazing stat to me um so i don't I, I don't know it depends if geographically where your listeners are but like you know ambien is the brand name in the in the u.s for uh like zopiclone in in the uk like it's a mm. you know, the z drug like hip, the, the generic hypnotic sleeping pill um more participants have taken part in controlled studies of Sleepio than have ever taken part in studies of Ambien. Wow. So, you know, we have enough for a meta-analysis at this point, wow. right? Like, which, but just on Sleepio. And so, you know, that for me, most excitingly speaks to the potential of digital therapeutics, digital medicine is that, you know, the, the last two studies were in JAMA psychiatry, Lancet psychiatry, respectively. So two biggest, you know, highest impact journals in the world. The one in the Lancet, the authors believe to be the largest ever controlled study of CBT. It's three, it's period, like three and a half thousand participants uh, over UK college students. Like I honestly, I mean, that's a good example of where, like, I forgot about it, <laughs> right? <laughs> because it, it wasn't even a blip on our servers, right? Because it's fully automated. And yet, you know, snap of the fingers, it's a bit more complicated than this, to be fair, like I'm sort of oversimplifying it. But, you know, from a, from a technical perspective, delivery perspective, you know, we had, you know, just without noticing it, delivered the largest ever controlled study of, of a psychological intervention. And so, you know, I, and, you know, I honestly thought, mm, there's a good chance that won't show an effect. You know, it's UK college students, mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to regulate my sleep when I was a student, you know, like even if I could, um, <laughs> but, but we did, we did see an effect, but if we didn't, that'd be fine. Like we go, okay, well, what do we learn from this? You know, let's look at the data for this population. You know, do we need to adjust how it's delivered? Do we need to think about do, what do we, you know, what does this tell us um, that we should learn from and improve from? So as it, as it happens, we did see an effect, you know, in, 
insomnia, comorbid anxiety and depression, and even psychotic symptoms like hallucinations. But um, so yeah. Anyway, so like, so I think I think that that yeah that that data is I got it like I said, I've got to give credit to Colin as being the driver for that, and I'm very grateful for it now. So I'm really interested then on on something you said earlier about you know the effect on the sector and you know the ability of digital therapeutics to obviously create this evidence, get the credibility, you know, get patients on side or consumers on side. You know, where do you see the digital therapeutics sector going, both you know in the US and or the UK? Yeah, so I so start with the UK, and so like um, you know, uh, it's great to see this sort of strategic alignment with the triple aim you know this idea that uh i think it was actually donald berwick uh you know ex-medicare medicaid Mm. guy who first sort of coined this but this idea that you know any modern health system needs to be striving to you know deliver population care sort of preventative you know population level health um uh increase quality continue to increase quality of care at the treatment end and reduce cost as a triple aim um do all those th- things at the same time. Um, like digital therapeutics are the only type of intervention that I'm aware of that can do all three simultaneously. Uh, that can actually, you can, you know, as, as, our, as I was just explaining, you know, the, 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 in, a, in, a, in a research context, you, know, you can inoculate essentially a whole population with a you know, digital therapeutic super efficiently like it's just it's software so you can just like give access to millions of people by flicking a switch essentially um and yet as you can see from the outcomes you know this you know we've now got reams and reams of not just control studies but clinical audit studies like in iap services in the uk for example showing that our outcomes based on iap's collected data are at least comparable to the face-to-face intervention so the quality of care is also delivered and of course because it's software it's possible to arrive at, it is necessary to arrive at like reimbursement models that are mutually sustainable that, mm-hmm. you know, we have to, in, you know, especially in the sort of the pressures the NHS is under, you, you've got to do that. You've got to be able to show that it's got to be affordable as well as cost effective. So I don't, quite frankly, I don't see any other way, particularly in mental health, that the very admirable aims of the NHS are going to be met with, without digital therapeutics is a very, very mm. significant portion. And, and I would say that those in a very different system, you know, the, all of the cost and disease burden are exactly the same in the US, even if they hit different entities. Mm. And so on that note then, you know, your tagline is to help millions back to mental health. Uh, safe to say you've almost completed sleep, um, certainly more so than anyone else is doing, but what are you tackling next? Yeah, so we uh, are this year launching our new um, product called Daylight, uh, which is prim- starting to be focused in like generalized anxiety disorder. Um, the it's actually not just our second product, but our first product on our new platform that will allow us to, uh, you know, more easily adapt and extend and create new interventions. Uh, again, learning. You know, Sleepio you know, is sort of fantastic at what it does in terms of outcomes. I, I remain like the biggest critic of the product and like it's sort of like continually like, oh, there's so much it, like it, it could be doing. And, you know, and so Daylight um, gives, you know, learn, takes all of those lessons and 
you know, applies them structurally as well. So, you know, that, um, that is going to be exciting to sort of um, push on with. And like I say, it should give us a platform on which we can continue to add, you know, new solutions to increasingly efficiently. That's amazing. And let's, let's just hope that it's even half as successful as sleep here, right? Because anxiety is just an incredible, incredibly difficult problem to solve and, and causes such huge issues for so many people that um, I certainly wish you the best of luck. But Peter, the way we end these podcasts is we hand back over to you to kind of summarize a little bit about yourself, um, a little bit about Sleepio, and close us out with any asks that you've got of our audience. Oh, cool. So yeah, so um, yeah, so Peter Hames, co-founder of Big Health, uh, a digital therapeutics company focused on mental health, you know, by which I mean we're taking these evidence-based non-drug therapies for mental health like cognitive behavioral therapy uh fully automating them and as a result uh delivering them in a way that is as scalable and consistent as drugs um and you know i'm sort of very uh excited by you know the reception that we've had to cpo in both the us and uk now accessible to over 12 million people globally um you know, working with large employees in the US and, um, you know, with the NHS in the UK, um, you know, backed by you know, very significant research outcomes uh, across 33 papers, you know, eight randomized control trials. Um, and I think, um, what would my ask be? I mean, I think um, I don't really have, I don't really have an ask. I'm very, you know, I'd be keen, my, my direction of, like my mindset is more about wanting to help i guess and so you know in the capacity of you know nhs innovation fellow as you said <laughs> sounds like there's been a few uh but you know I, like i i'm sort of striving to uh within the, the my possible bandwidth find any way that i can provide help particularly to you know like nhs innovators who are keen to uh you know expand beyond the uk borders uh, i would just be keen to to provide help in any way I can help or advice. Cool. And for those that are out there that might be struggling with their sleep, what can they do to access Sleepio? So if uh, you are in London or Oxfordshire, you can go on to sleepio.com forward slash NHS and just follow the sign up process there and you will get uh, free access to it. Um, if you're not in one of those regions um, and you're not uh, an employee at one of our covered uh, customers, still go on to sleepio.com and you uh, will be able to sign up to participate in research. Uh, and then in short order, you should get, you know, as soon as uh, the next study is initiated, you'll get free access to Sleepio. Perfect. Um, and finally, if people want to get in touch with you or the guys at Sleepio, how can they get in touch? If they email um, ea at bighealth.com, that will be the best uh, point of entry. And I, I want to apologize in advance if there's any latency in getting back to you. <laughs> but I, that is my, but, um, so please be understanding. But um, I, I, it's my sincere intent to try and, try and help if, uh, yeah, in any way I can. Perfect. Peter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Great to speak to you. Likewise. Thanks, guys.